Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. And I am your co-host, Faith Ryan. The Department of Health and Human Services is such a large organization. There's 115 programs across 11 operating divisions. Yeah, and they're working on some pretty cool tech initiatives just to ramp up their data strategy to speed up innovation and improve public health. They are. There's been a large push from the secretary to advance kidney health. It resulted in an executive order on advancing kidney health. Is HHS playing a role in that? In fact, they are. So HHS has an initiative called Kidney Innovation Accelerator. It's a public-private partnership that's focusing on advancing kidney research and how we prevent treat and diagnose kidney disease. We have in the studio with us HHS CTO Ed Simcox to talk about this and more. Ed, thank you for joining us on GovCast. Thanks for having me. I'm accompanied by my co-host Faith Ryan, who is looking more into the health space, and we are looking forward to tackling some of the initiatives and challenges that you are undergoing at HHS. So describe your role at HHS. So I am the chief technology officer at HHS. I report to the secretary, and I sit in what we call the immediate office of the secretary. And that really gives me a wide lens view across our massive department. So a little bit about HHS that a lot of people may not know. We are the largest civilian agency in the U.S. federal government. We have a $1.2 trillion annual budget. And we have an IT, annual IT consolidated budget of $5.5 billion. We have 6,300 full-time IT staff, and we have 26 agencies and, and divisions at HHS. And uh, some of those agencies are very well known. So Food and Drug Administration, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institutes of Health, and then um, other offices and divisions such as the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. I don't think people realize how big that truly is because it's more than just providing health care. It's all the regulatory components behind it, all those sub-agencies. It's huge. It really is. We we actually are a health care provider, but that's just a very small portion of the business that we do at HHS. The part that is health care provider related is Indian Health Service. So uh, we actually have an agency, Indian Health Service, that provides health care services and social services to 2.2 million Native Americans and Alaskan Natives throughout the United States and the territories. So we do provide direct health care, uh, but really the work that we do isn't the direct provision of health care. It's in support of health and, and health care and wellness of people, of, of American citizens, uh, as well as their social well-being. And so all of the work that we do across all of our agencies supports that. How does technology support those working with health at HHS? It's a great question. So in my office, we really focus on three things. We focus on the use of data to get better insights about uh, how to improve health as, as well as reduce the costs of healthcare in the United States. We also spend a lot of time looking across our agencies and across industry and, and how can we interface better with industry to drive innovation. So we do a lot of public-private partnership work. We do a lot of outreach to the innovation and technology communities throughout the United States. We have a, a great program called HHS Startup Day that my office started where we go around the United States and we have a one-day event. And we have local hosts, and basically the local host will bring into the room innovators, technology companies, the investment community, investors, so venture capitalists, 
private equity, institutional investors, as well as uh, insurance companies and, and healthcare providers. And the whole idea here is for us to be able to demystify HHS, help make it a, a less opaque in the eyes of the external community. And in so doing, what we're really hoping to do is be the front door to the innovation community, especially the health, tech, and medical device community throughout the United States. And really our goals in doing that are, are to, um, beyond demystifying HHS, to really help stimulate investment and, and drive innovation because we are such a heavily regulated healthcare system in the United States. And sometimes it's very hard. You know, people have great ideas, they have inventions, they have innovations, and, and they, they look at getting through the regulatory process as insurmountable a lot of times. So they give these lightning round talks, and then over lunch, we actually set up tables with tent cards uh, indicating which agency is represented at that table, and then people can just come up and eat lunch with the, the leadership from these agencies and ask them questions. How do I do this? You know, why do I have such a problem doing that, et cetera? And uh, we've gotten just great feedback from the investment community as well as the tech community and, you know, throughout the United States when we do these events. How important are those partnerships in developing or modernizing some of your IT systems? Super important, super important. We have to be very careful in the federal government about um, how we interact with industry. But I think we need to use all of the, I guess, the gifts, if you will, that Congress has bestowed upon us, you know, new novel ways that we can interact with industry to really move the ball forward. You know, the things in IT in general move so quickly in the world. And um, a lot of times within the federal government, I think we're hampered by legacy ways to acquire technology and then legacy ways to kind of consume that technology. One of the things that my office does is we keep a kind of a rolling tab of who in federal government is doing a good job at piercing through the bureaucracy and helping us uh, reduce the time to value, if you will, for things like a cloud and AI and, and new novel technologies that we see coming out. So that goes for the IT portfolio within HHS, right? I'd mentioned how large that is, and, and that's obviously very important, but that um, also has a bearing on how we interact with uh, industry when it comes to um, doing the work that I talked about before, the outreach work, right? Making sure that the government is less opaque and, and making sure that we are interacting on a very meaningful basis. So what sparked your interest in the health space and more specifically technology? I've always been fascinated with healthcare. Um, I didn't start my career in healthcare. I thought I wanted to be a tax attorney. I uh, went to law school. I tell people that the uh, most important job I ever had was my first job, where I was a uh, administrative law judge, basically, in the state tax department in Indiana. The reason it was my most important job is because I realized very quickly I didn't want to be a tax attorney. But I also learned during that time that um, I had a fascination with technology. I didn't have a computer science degree, but I did some work studies in the computer labs in, at DePaul University, my undergrad, and became fascinated with the early days of the internet. And so um, I decided I wanted to abruptly change my career direction, and I went into the commissioner at the Department of Revenue and said, hey, I think we should digitize all the tax forms in the state of Indiana, and I think we should put them on the internet on the web. And his 
his response back to me was to ask a question. He asked me, what's that? So this was, this was very, very early on in, in the, the days of the internet and the web. And, and I explained it to him and I explained the benefit of getting this stuff out there because we had this idea of voluntary compliance, which is getting people to pay their taxes without having to force them or, or use a stick approach, right? Use more of a carrot approach. And we had a lot of out-of-state out taxpayers that couldn't get a hold of paper forms in, in an easy way. So this was a way that we were able to publish those forms and we saw a, a great, great increase in voluntary compliance. I was fortunate enough to be able to set up the second website in Indiana state government. And I knew at that point that that's what I wanted to do in my career. So I had friends that um, were in this space that, that I had made in undergrad as well as when I was doing the work at the Department of Revenue. And I realized that I was making about $27,000 a year and, and they were uh, doing much better than that. So I decided to launch uh, my own company and founded it with a, another person. And I haven't looked back since. Can you give us some examples of policies that you've been working on at HHS? Absolutely. So what we realize is that um, we have a very disjointed healthcare system as far as data is concerned. We have a lot of healthcare providers that have massive amounts of data within their four walls. We have insurance companies that have massive amounts of claims and billing data associated with patients. We have a pharmaceutical industry and retail pharmacies that have a ton of data on uh, how people are consuming the therapies that uh, they're prescribed. But we have a very disjointed system in the United States. We've been struggling with this uh, for quite some time. So one of the things that we're working on from a policy perspective, and again, I consult on policy. I don't, I don't enforce it or, or make it per se, uh, but in a collaborative approach, um, one of the things we're very interested in doing is figuring out how we can liberate data uh, from all of these organizations in a secure way that respects the security, the privacy, and the fiduciary responsibility that these organizations have to the patients to protect that data so that the patients feel comfortable with the data being shared for the right reasons. Combining that data, synthesizing that data to get better insights on, on how we can improve healthcare and, again, reduce costs. So um, there are multiple policy levers that can be pulled to address this. We're looking at multiple of those, and we're in a rulemaking period actually right now in relationship to the 21st Century Cures Act around how we can, again, how can we liberate that data and make it available to patients uh, and, and across um, organizations. Because at the end of the day, the policy decisions that we make to benefit healthcare in the United States need to be predicated on accurate, complete, truthful data. Those are the best policy decisions. And that's a bipartisan thing, by the way. We have great bipartisan support for doing that very thing. How is technology impacting how HHS is handling or dealing with some of these data challenges? Well, I tell you, um, a lot of times when we talk about technologies, we're, we're talking about shiny objects, right? Uh, blockchain, AI, robotic process automation, those types of things. And it's fun to think about the future, right? Kind of from a, a science fiction approach. And a lot of times those technologies are hammers walking around looking for nails. Uh, but what I can tell you is that um, there are some, some pretty basic technologies that are really impacting us in a positive way to help us exchange data, for instance. 
One of those is the idea of APIs, right? Which has been around for a long time, application programming interfaces. But what we're doing is um, we're collaborating with industry and across federal government uh, to set up standard APIs so we can exchange healthcare data in a meaningful way and not have to create these, these huge uh, data warehouses that are oftentimes are bridged to nowhere and don't have a great in return on investment. If we're able to connect systems together using things like APIs and advanced identity management systems and cybersecurity systems, it affords us an opportunity to, again, synthesize and combine massive data sets and compute against those data sets in ways we haven't been able to in the past. So we actually have worked uh, very closely with Congress and worked very closely with the policy folks at HHS to figure out great ways to effectuate the use of technology such as APIs to do that very thing. So are APIs the only tools that HHS has to eliminate those data silos or improve interoperability between agencies? Or are there certain policies that are being implemented? So the 21st Century Cures Act, um, th there are a couple things I'll tell you. The, the first is that it really calls for us to, as an agency or a department, figure out how to eliminate what we call data blocking. So a lot of organizations see the data that they have as a great asset, a valuable asset. Um, secondly, a lot of organizations outside of government are afraid to share data because of uh, possible regulatory issues that they might run into. So we have this law called HIPAA, right, um, which is all about securing data and, and making sure that patient data is safe and secure so that we can engender trust back with the public and, and, and patients about their data. One of the things that is very interesting and almost ironic about HIPAA is that in the name itself, the word portability exists, right? But we actually kind of sacrificed portability at the altar of privacy and security when we implemented HIPAA. So we're going back and we're, we're actually looking at the law and the rules that, that fall under the law to say, hey, do we really have a problem with the HIPAA law itself? Or do we just have a marketing problem? Do we, are, are we weighting the privacy more than the portability? And how do we bring those things more into balance? Right? So that's an example of how we're examining policy uh, to hopefully benefit getting data in the hands of patients. Turning to the 21st Century Cures Act, one of the things, again, that, that we're looking at is, is data blocking. And, and how do we address that? We're not interested in penalizing people, we're, and we're not interested in, in causing more regulatory burden and oversight of industry. But what we are interested in doing is figuring out um, how policy can be used to get data out of organizations in a meaningful way to affect positively affect public health, for instance. The rules that will come out will address data blocking, um, just as an example. You know, you mentioned founding your own company um, in the private industry. How has that move into government affected some of how you view the role of HHS? Well, I can tell you that I was involved with startups, healthcare startups, and then I moved to a large healthcare provider organization that had 18 hospitals. It was a $5 billion organization. Then I moved to AT&T, where I was responsible for working with startups, healthcare uh, startups and, and health tech startups that uh, were interested in leveraging technology to come out with uh, new novel ways to deliver care, communicate with patients, et cetera. 
And in all of those experiences that I, that I had, I ran up against HHS. And I really didn't know how to traverse HHS. It seemed like a big, scary thing to me. I, I remember even being fearful early in my career of picking up the phone and calling somebody at HHS because I thought, oh my gosh, you know, what if I say something on this phone call that draws attention to the work that we're doing in a way that might not necessarily be good? And um, another story I'll tell you is that when I was at AT&T, I, I worked with startups quite frequently. I had half a foot of, of um, business plans on my desk from startups all the time. And we were trying to figure out how we could accelerate the time to value for these organizations. So they get their products into market, get them uh, through the regulatory process at HHS, et cetera. And uh, I reached out to our general counsel at uh, AT&T, and he was responsible for the 800 lawyers that we had at AT&T, small army of lawyers. And I asked him, do we have anybody within the legal department at AT&T that understands anything about the regulatory processes with the Food and Drug Administration? And he said, Ed, I'm, I'm sure we do. Let me get back with you. Can I have a few days? I said, sure. He gets back with me and he said, I'm embarrassed to say, we don't have a single attorney that I can find. We put out an all-hands uh, email. We don't have a single attorney that understands the regulatory environment within FDA, much less HHS proper. So the, the answer was then I had to go out and sign a retainer with a consultant for $80,000, basically just to get access to folks within FDA. Not that FDA wouldn't return phone calls or publish phone numbers, but when you're starting from ground zero, you really don't understand how to penetrate government. And uh, we wanted to move fast on this. And so when I came into this role as, as CTO, I was reminded of that very thing. And that's one of the reasons that we started Startup Days. The other reason we started the uh, HHS Startup Day program was coming into government from industry. I was really, really surprised that within the first few weeks of being there, I was getting uh, meeting requests from folks in industry, academia, science, et cetera. But these requests were coming through lobbyists, former members of Congress, lawyers that were kind of externally representing uh, these companies in, the, in this kind of formal ceremonial way. And I said, that's, that's unacceptable. You know, we have to figure out a way to get through to people that HHS is, is theirs. It belongs to the American people and it belongs to the innovators. And, and that's why we try earnestly to be the front door to HHS for the innovation community. How important is emerging technology at HHS? Emerging technology is super important at HHS. So if we take artificial intelligence, for example, we have a lot of work going on in our agencies around artificial intelligence. There are some amazing, really early insights that we're getting using AI. Robotic process automation is another thing that we're seeing a, a great uptick in. And that the whole idea, kind of from the healthcare perspective of using robotic process automation, for instance, is that we want people practicing at the top of their license, is what we say in, in healthcare. So if you're a doctor, we want you being a doctor. We don't want you being a tech. We don't want you being, we don't want you nursing a computer. We want you to actually practice at the top of your license. And we look at the use of robotic process automation as a way that we can automate manual processes that really, really smart people are doing today 
and shouldn't be doing. And we want to enable them to practice at the top of their profession, their license, their skill set, et cetera. So we have multiple initiatives going on just around process automation. AI, same way. We have automated our internal e-discovery process for the first time at HHS. In just the last few months, we have pulled into our brand new e-discovery platform about 40 million different documents. Wow. And this was a completely manual process before we started down this path. So you can imagine how labor-intensive that was. We had small armies of contractors involved with pouring through documents, reading documents, doing manual text searches in documents. And now what we're able to do is automate a lot of the front-end work of that. So you can take a large body of documentation and get through it very quickly and then basically surface just the most meaningful stuff or the the pertinent things um, to the smart people that they need to pour over those documents. So instead of going through, say, 40 million documents, we're only going through 100,000 documents at the end of the day in a manual way. And that that's going to yield great savings for taxpayers, and it's it's going to really accelerate our time to response when we get uh, requests for information from outside of HHS. What challenges arose through looking at some of these technologies? When I came into federal government, I realized the federal government was really behind in a lot of ways. You know, I've been here for two and a half years, and uh, I started getting speaking requests when I came in to events, local events here uh, in the D.C. area. And people were asking me, hey, will you come and speak about cloud and how industry does cloud, how they use it, et cetera? And I thought, gosh, that's a pretty basic uh, request, but sure, I'll do that. (laughs) And I, I got one early on where they wanted me to come talk about, can you come and tell the people in the room, which were industry people and feds, can you come talk about the three different types of cloud as far as the NIST definition and where you think that the federal government should go in implementing those? I mean, these are very, very simple questions that industry started answering back in the mid-2000s. What I would say is we, we need to continue to very earnestly figure out how we consume cloud within federal government. My point is I think that we still have some basic blocking and tackling that we need to do so that we can get regulation and blockers out of the way to really starburst things like cloud within federal government. So recently, an executive order was signed to advance kidney health, uh, with some of its goals being to achieve pre-market approval of an artificial kidney through FDA and to encourage innovation in new therapies through the Kidney Innovation Accelerator program at HHS. So what is the Kidney Innovation Accelerator? Before I tell you about KidneyX, I'm really excited about KidneyX. I want to tell you the why. I'll tell you the what in a second, but I, I really want to talk about the why. Why are we focused on kidney care in America, You know, especially all of a sudden? 37 million Americans have kidney disease in the United States. I don't think people realize that. It's the ninth leading cause of death in the United States. Over 700,000 people have kidney failure, and those people either need to have a kidney transplant or they need to go on to dialysis. So we have about 500,000 people on dialysis at any given time in the United States. Half of those people will be dead within five years. So while dialysis, when it was created, when it was brought into the market, was a great step forward in helping people that had kidney failure, we haven't seen any innovation in this space 
since President Nixon signed the in-stage renal disease legislation in 1972. So what we decided to do is figure out a way that we could inject innovation back into a space that hadn't seen it in a very long time. So interkidney X. Kidney X is really predicated on the X Prize model, if you're familiar with that. So the X Prize Foundation was a nonprofit that was established many years ago to create a mechanism to spur and accelerate innovation and hopefully create radical breakthroughs to pressing problems that we face, you know, that humanity faces. And so the idea of the X Prize model is to create cash prizes that motivate individuals and organizations, not only in traditional disciplines, uh, but across all disciplines, really take a wide lens or, or a broader approach of bringing people to bear on a problem and help you know, design new innovations and technologies to solve grand problems. So back to kidney, right? So there's been little innovation in kidney care because of the way we pay for it. When you get kidney failure, you automatically go into Medicare. And so it's kind of an example of single-payer health care, if you will, and where anybody with that disease state actually gets to go into Medicare. And the lack of innovation really stems from that, and it stems from the fact that we pay for it a certain way. We, there's basically a group code, a group payment uh, for a single visit to a dialysis center. And so what happens there, we see very little innovation because of the way we pay for it. We, we don't see an opportunity for the dialysis providers to actually inject innovation into what they do because it's a fixed price of care, you know, per unit of care. So Kidney X is really meant to address the lack of innovation that we've seen in this space. And there are really three goals to Kidney X. The first one is we're really interested in creating results that are real and meaningful to patients. Uh, and the care that they receive. Secondly, we're interested in fostering collaboration and surfacing solutions, again, across those traditional disciplinary boundaries. And then thirdly, we're really interested in, in attracting investment into a space that has been perceived as risky by investors for a very long time. So we designed Kidney X to have three prizes. The first of those prizes is really focused on dialysis. We named it Redesign Dialysis, and I'm happy to say we gave out our first um, set of prizes, which was really just to surface the ideas that are out there. And so earlier this year, we had our first Kidney X Summit, and we gave out 15 prizes of $75,000 apiece to promising innovative ideas. We're going to follow that up with a phase two to the first prize, Redesigning Dialysis. The phase two is really focused on proofs of concept. So not just ideas, but people that have already started to prove that their innovations and their technologies could eventually be commercialized, right? So you start to think about implantable artificial kidneys, external wearable uh, type artificial kidneys, new therapeutic drugs, and, and those types of things where people have been working on this stuff for a very, very long time. The third prize, actually, what we want to do is actuate these these proofs of concept and see these things commercialized. So X is meant to stimulate that innovation and eventually get alternatives to traditional dialysis into the market as soon as possible. So it's surprising to me that there was no innovation, as you said, since Nixon. 
How is HHS going to tackle some of these challenges through this program? So one of the things we're doing is we're looking at what is working in other countries. You know, if we say that the way we pay for it might be standing in the way, are other countries seeing innovation? Are other countries paying less for dialysis and getting better outcomes and things of that nature? And the answer is yes, there are examples. For instance, in Hong Kong, I believe the number is 80% of patients receive dialysis in the home. And in the United States, the predominant majority of, of dialysis is done in a dialysis center, which is expensive and disruptive for people. When you give dialysis at night, you have the opportunity to sleep during your dialysis session, which allows you to be ready for the next day and, and be more productive and be able to work. When you are taking dialysis inside of a dialysis center, it's typically during business hours, and most people receive three dialysis uh, sessions per week. So you can understand how debilitating uh, and disabling that might be, not only physically, but just you know uh, for somebody to be able to hold down a job, right? So not only are we using Kidney X to really stimulate innovation kind of in the, uh, the technology side, but we're also looking at policies that will allow us to really turn the corner on things like home dialysis. So outside of Kidney X, one of the things that um, we're looking at is, is there a way that we can incentivize the use of home dialysis instead of in-center dialysis? Because we know the outcomes are better and it's better for the patients. And so we're looking at payment models within CMS that will support that. And then we want to learn from that. The other area where we really need to look is with transplant. So we have a huge supply chain issue with transplant. We waste a lot of viable organs every year in the United States, and therefore there are a lot of unnecessary deaths in the United States associated with spoiled organs and organs that never make it to a patient. So what emerging technology are you most excited about, and where do you see the future of health IT in the next five years? So looking at um, HHS's mission, which is really to create better health and social outcomes for all Americans, uh, while also bending the cost curve associated with healthcare. I think there are really two exciting trends. Uh, you know, I'd mentioned the use of modern APIs, application program interfaces. While this is simple and it's not super sexy, it really does reduce the need for massive data warehouses. It allows time to value to be shortened when we're looking at combining different data sets, synthesizing data. And it, it allows us to you know, quickly, securely interface systems together so that we can combine data and find great secondary uses for data as well. So a lot of the data at HHS is generated for a very specific purpose in mind, to come out with a new scientific discovery, um, to benefit a particular public health issue, et cetera. But what we know is that a lot of times there's an even greater secondary use of data. APIs really allow us to make greater secondary use of data. So as far as internal data strategy, we have these massive organizations that, that have tons of great data. We don't really do a great job of sharing data. And we have a lot of issues that, that prevent us from um, sharing data in a meaningful way. When I came in to the federal government, um, one of the things I wanted to do is a listening tour. So we went around and we talked with uh, data stewards, uh, people that were using data across HHS. And what we found was there was 
both a reluctance of agencies to share data because they didn't want to get in trouble for sharing it, and they had multiple layers of regulation you know, sitting on top of, of that data, while at the same time, there was a great hunger for them to access data from other agencies. So what we did is said, we need to figure out a way that we can lower the fear and the barriers associated with sharing that data. So one of the things that we're looking into is streamlining what we call data use agreements. We have one agency, a small agency, that has 300 people in it who receives data from one of our largest agencies. They have 200 active data use agreements at any given time with this other agency. I think they have two or three lawyers. That is an untenable situation. We need to figure out a better way to do government so that we can more naturally exchange data and, uh, and do it, again, observing privacy and security and our fiduciary relationship to protect that data and while observing all of the regulations that impact that data. So continuing on that thought of using advanced technology, how can federal agencies best leverage cloud? Great question. So first and foremost, we still have a lot of opportunity to take legacy apps and lift and shift them into the cloud. I don't think we should be doing that just because we can do it, though. It needs to make sense. It needs to, there, there needs to be um, something of benefit there. And I've had this conversation with multiple people, congresspeople, uh, people at OMB, and, and others. We, you know, Part of Fatara is this idea of cloud first, right? And data center optimization, let's reduce the footprint of our data center because we want to reduce the footprint of our data center, right, and our carbon footprint, et cetera. But it's, it's more complicated than cloud first. It's, uh, and, and so I really appreciate what uh, Suzette Kent's office and, and others um, at OMB are doing around this idea of cloud smart rather than, than cloud first. I think that's the right approach, and that gives people a little bit of breathing room, and they're not just trying to brute force apps into the cloud that, that where there probably isn't a lot of benefit. And, and frankly, there are severe limitations for some applications of even getting them into the cloud. I mean, it would be virtually impossible. I know of a couple applications inside of HHS where it will be virtually impossible to move them uh, in their legacy form uh, into the cloud. And these are applications that are running on mainframes and would need to be entirely refactored from a full stack perspective before we would even be able to get them there. And that represents a lot of work. It's going to be a multi-year effort. It'll happen at some point, but I don't think we should be looking at doing it just to do it, if that makes sense. The second thing I would say is we need to be looking at taking a multi-vendor approach to cloud as much as possible. We need the cloud vendors to understand they're not going to get vendor lock on us. And contracts need to be constructed in such a way where applications and workloads are actually portable. We need a way to abstract the uniqueness of each of these platforms, if you will, so that we can pick up and move to a new vendor any application and avoid having to refactor applications and, and, and rewrite software and interfaces and, and so forth. So I would just encourage people as they're looking at developing new applications to really keep in mind to take a full stack approach to their development, but also keep in mind the need to virtualize all that, encapsulate all that, containerize all that so that things can be picked up and moved to other vendors. That keeps the vendors innovative, it keeps the vendors hungry for our business, and it also reduces the amount of money that cloud costs the federal government. And then finally, it's super important as we think about cloud to think about how much it costs to enter and how much it costs to exit. 
how much does it cost to get the data in, how much does it cost to get the data out, and, and what is that going to do to you over time uh, as far as cost is concerned. And, and sometimes I think we leave that on the table. We, we talk about what our monthly fee is for IOPS and compute, but we don't necessarily calculate, you know, hey, if, if I want to move this into another cloud or I need to extract this data, how much is that really going to cost me? Right? In, in industry, these things are really easy to grapple with. In the federal government, that might take a new appropriation or an apportionment from OMB or something like that. And that kind of goes back to the earlier statements I made about it's pretty difficult to do cloud still in federal government. So what's next for you? You just took off your CIO hat, your acting CIO hat with Jose Arrieta's appointment. What projects or initiatives will be your immediate priorities in the next year? We're going to continue to focus on data in a big way. Data has been at the the heart of our office for a long time and will continue to be. We're going to be piloting a new data hub very soon, and I've been uh, working with people across federal government to learn what kind of successes they've had in their data hub strategy and approach. We're going to be turning the corner on our on our strategy regarding the data hub. For a long time in federal government, there was an idea that a centralized data hub strategy meant, you know, looking out at all of the agencies or components of an agency and saying, give us your data, give us a snapshot of your data, and we'll put it in a data warehouse or a data lake or, or a data hub, and then we'll allow people to compute against it. But there's a new, more modern way of looking at this, and that is we, we don't have to grab that data and make snaps of that data. We can actually leave that data at rest in its native system and compute against it there or allow for more control to exist out in the components as far as how data is resourced, um, how it's governed, how it's managed. And what this does is I think it allows for people to be more comfortable to share their data. Because at the, at the end of the day, and I've said this to my team many times, Data sharing across HHS is not a technology problem. We know how to do it, right? It's a people issue. You have to meet the people where they are and understand their fears, their wants, and their desires. And you have to foster a relationship of trust with people that are going to be providing this data or using this data. And they have to understand what the data is going to be used for, how it's going to be used, and everything. So we've really kind of pivoted from an idea of bring us all your data um, and, and using almost a baton approach, you know, shaming people into giving data, that doesn't work, right? That's, that's not a sustainable model. And I know of multiple federal agencies that have taken that approach and been very limited in their ability to surface data for secondary use. One of the agencies that I think is doing a great job now is within DOD, so the Jake, right, the, the Joint AI Command. Um, they've really taken this approach of lead with need, which is look for those pressing issues that need to be solved that are multi-component issues. They don't exist, say, just within the Department of Navy, but they exist across multiple components and maybe, you know, outside of DOD as well. And look for opportunities to provide a platform, to provide utility, to provide consulting to those components and and, uh, help people understand you're not just giving us your data, we're here to help you solve an issue. And also allow the folks that are running those projects and trying to solve those problems, allow them to be in control of their own destiny and in control of their data, right? So that's the approach that we're taking at HHS, and we're seeing a great level of acceptance in taking that new approach. Well, Ed, thank you so much for joining us on GovCast. This was a fantastic conversation. I feel like there's so many more things I would probably want to get back to you on and follow more closely. 
Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me today. Really appreciate it. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. GovCast is produced and hosted by Amy Kluber. Edited by Chris Edwards. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.